our, our objective um, is to help them run operations more efficiently. So if we can avoid all the parking violations and fines that cities are, are levying against you because we can help you park more proactively, or at the very least have actionable information um, that can help you address bad outcomes before they become um, you know, a financial issue. Um, insurance costs are really high in this industry because insurers claim they don't have enough data. By virtue of knowing exactly where these devices are, better than GPS can tell you, we can provide that empirical data. And then even beyond that, we have a, uh, the ability to slow vehicles down and avoid or mitigate the kind of behavior that insurance companies are hedging against by pricing. Hello, and welcome to the Atonicast. I'm Ed Niedermeyer. I am the Communications Director at Partners for Automated Vehicle Education and the author of Ludicrous, the Unvarnished Story of Tesla Motors. And I'm Kirsten Korosek, Transportation Editor at TechCrunch. And I'm Alex Roy, the founder of the Human Driving Association and the Director of Special Operations at Argo AI, whom I do not represent on this show. And today we have a very cool guest that I met recently in Miami. His name, and I hope I pronounced this correctly, is Alex Nesik. He's the co-founder of Drover AI, which is a very cool company that exists at the intersection of safety, driver assistance, and scooters. But I think we better let him explain about what they do, because it's something I feel very strongly about. Welcome, Alex. Thank you. Thank you. And you nailed the pronunciation of my name. Thanks for that. Tell us what Drover's product is. Can we first learn how you guys met in Miami, since it's such a hot spot? (laughs) Well, first of all, anybody you meet in Miami is bound to be it's bound to be cool. Well, I mean, the event I think led led itself uh, well to to kind of uh, meeting that way. It was, was it at some crypto event or something? No. <laughs> Wait a second. Okay, it was like Alex this. goes to those crypto events. No, no I don't. So I don't do you. crypto. There was there Miami tech, hashtag Miami Tech uh, has like a few people who are at the center of Twitter hashtag Gravity. They announce as an event, you go. This event. I think it was like this guy, Chris Adamo, who's very cool. Uh, Brian Breslin, who's involved in local entrepreneur scene. Uh, Maria Durchi, Cesar Fernandez, all these folks. I don't remember how I got there. And Harry Campbell, everybody's buddy from the rideshare guy, whom we all like. And I uh, was there and he uh, was making fun of me in public, which I deserve. And right next to him was a table of what appeared to be smart people. And one of them had the blue steel look on his face and he seemed cool. And it was this guy, Alex Nesik. And I'm like, this guy looks interesting. We should, I should know him. Well, I, I think that's, that's my side of the story. Sure. Well, actually I was, I wasn't aware of all those other intersection of events you just rattled off. I was there for commotion <laughs> Miami, which is put on oh, yeah. by, by John, John Rossent, Right. Um, I should remember that. <laughs> And uh, anyway, and I was speaking to Carlos Cruz Casas, who's a uh, you know, distinguished gentleman out of uh, Miami. Uh, but but yeah, I think that the, the word, in fact, it wasn't my blue steel um, you know, X modeling pose. It was the, the word ground truth that got your attention. I think I was in the middle oh. of some conversation and, it, and, and your head swiveled. And he said, "Did somebody say ground truth?" That's that's how I remember. I was looking for an escape, but only smart only smart people use that in everyday conversation. I try to work in it as often as possible, even with my kids. Go on. <laughs> so that was that was entertaining. Thank you for that backstory. Now you can tell us what you do. So. Well, he was very cool, Alex. Tell us about the Drover product. It was it's interesting. Yeah. So um, I, I'm co-founder, and and I call myself 
uh, chief business officer at Drover. That's a catch-all title, but Drover essentially focuses on on producing a technology we call PathPilot, uh, which is a an IoT device, uh, Internet of Things device, a module that is designed to go onto any micromobility vehicle and leverages computer vision and artificial intelligence on the edge uh, to to deliver what we call contextual location awareness. So rather than pursue um, more precise GPS-based precision location, we leverage the camera on board, among other sensors, uh, to, to do what humans do. Who, you know, we go outside and we don't say, what are my exact coordinates? We look around and position ourselves that way. So in the context of cities that are quite varied in their you know, uh, infrastructure, we've trained our system to recognize the difference, for example, out of the box uh, between a sidewalk, a street, and a bike lane whenever the vehicle is moving faster than two miles per hour. And below two miles per hour, our system uh, transitions to looking for valid parking outcomes, which we all know can be quite uh, difficult to achieve in free-floating micromobility and one of the biggest pain points in cities. And so our system looks for um, valid parking within three categories currently and can be trained on additional ones. So within two feet of a curb, within two feet of a bike rack, or within a designated scooter corral, which can be you know, marked by decals or paint and, and cities are moving towards that to try to incentivize um, uh, rides ending in those locations as opposed to willy-nilly. So anything outside of those is invalid. And, and so we enable proactive compliance with with these types of uh, situations. So you're, you're working with, I want to say spin. Yes. That yeah. That's right? one of our customers. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, are you, who else, what other companies are you, are, um, working like op- on the operator level? Yeah. Uh, so we have a, an agreement with beam mobility, which is one of the biggest players out of Southeast Asia. They'll be rolling this out in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, we have a, a smaller scale partnership with razor as well in, in the U S and we're in conversations with any number of um, the largest operators in Europe, but I don't have any signed agreements at this time, so I can't disclose uh, what, but we're also talking to bike share operators, for example, uh, again, because we go across modalities, but initially we're focused on scooters. So uh, there was a time when traction control and automatic emergency braking and, and a wide and uh, stability control were not uh, ubiquitous across passenger cars. And I don't know the exact history, maybe Ed, maybe you know it, uh, about how it came to be that uh, at least AEB became standard or ubiquitous across cars. Uh, but clearly that's a good thing. I mean, pe- the more driver assistance we have, the better. Why isn't, I guess, such rider assistance on scooters and micromobility uh, y- ubiquitous already? Like what's... What's the per- perception gap? Yeah, I think that's that's a you know kind of a, a nuanced question. I think that it's been a rapidly growing industry, and initially, what was uh, deployed was not suited to the task, right? On any number of of, uh, uh, of issues, from durability to efficiency to you know uh, how long the battery uh, capacity was and, and operation. So it's been basically uh, building the plane while flying it for the entire industry, and, and so I think that. Um, and to add to that, it's been an industry that has to deal with the regulatory environment in a very direct way because you're deploying hard assets in public infrastructure, which cities have a very um, you know, strong mandate to regulate. So uh, the, the, the driving force is, 
is on uh, kind of coming from two sides. On the regulatory side, you have cities that say, okay, great, we want to welcome you, but you got to make life a little bit easier for us. Um, and and what, what is, has been happening to date hasn't really been the case. And so they looked at technology to try to solve those problems. So I think that pr- provides an opportunity for uh, things like driver assistance or rider assistance to become more ubiquitous. Uh, and then on the, on the flip side, on the operator side, you have all the operational inefficiencies and, and um, problems that, that uh, come with the territory. And so uh, we try to exist at the kind of intersection of those two where we help operators better manage their fleets by knowing their behavior better and can proactively you know, Im- implement vehicle control. Because let's face it, users either don't know the rules and even when they do, humans are terrible at following them. And so currently the way that, that you know, the game is played is through user behavior management, which is extremely ineffective when done um, before an action or after the fact. And that's what's being done now. You have signs on scooters, you have the onboarding apps that go, you know, put you through screens of, hey, please don't do this, please don't do that. Swipe, 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 ignore, ignore, ignore. And then after the fact, some companies are leveraging a little bit of sensors to tell, hey, we think you rode on the sidewalk for 50% of the time. Please don't do that again. Again, ignore. Imagine if your seatbelt warning system worked that way. Nobody would ever wear their seatbelt. However, an audible feedback loop that doesn't stop is quite effective at making you <laughs> put your seatbelt on because otherwise it drives you insane. So, so that's kind of um, where what we enable is that that nudging at, as, as well as the potential for actual uh, vehicle control with the kind of uh, edge-based inferencing we can do. I was hoping we could maybe, um, if you could give us a little bit more depth in sort of um, how the technology is working. I mean or at least sort of in a, a simple way to kind of imagine it um, beyond computer vision, right? I mean, is it is this is it similar to like sem- semantic segmentation kind of a thing, which is typically right with autonomous vehicles is, is delineating drivable path from not like how. Wh- so, so full disclosure, I'm, I am not the technical person, so I know just enough to be dangerous. And um, <laughs> that's, I, <laughs> neither am I. And that's the amount that I'm always looking for. It's exactly that much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so with that caveat in place, uh, we, we do not use a semantic segmentation that requires uh, a lot more compute power and, and is, is quite a bit more prescriptive and, and requires you to kind of essentially go through hours and hours of footage and, and a lot of manual annotation. So what we've really the beauty in, in as I perceive it in what we've built, our team has, has, has been able to achieve is uh, to use rather um, cheap sensors because we're playing in a, in a, in an industry that doesn't have a tolerance for tens of thousands of additional sensors and technologies like millimeter wave and LIDAR and radar. So just, uh, using what we have available to us and adding a camera, um, and, and we are essentially doing, you know, um, classification, right. At its, at its kind of uh, most basic level, but training our system in a way that it is going to be able to, um, adapt itself and teach itself. Uh, and, and I guess the trick here, from what I understand it, again, being relative newbie to, to machine learning and, and deep learning, is, is the ability to kind of uh, be good at generalizing while still maintaining a high enough level of accuracy that doesn't um, create problems. And so, so our system has been trained on millions of images across dozens of cities in the U.S. And our system is built so that out of the box, it will perform at a really high level in any given urban environment for the task at hand, right? And again, the three categories we're after are street, sidewalk, and bike lane in, in, a, in a moving scenario. And so um, 
beyond that, if you go into a city that has city-specific infrastructure that might be tricking our system, it's just a function of training additionally on that specific infrastructure and then re, you know, annotating that as necessary and, and updating our core model. And then you can kind of uh, decimate it based on like the generic model uh, combined with city-specific, you know, 100% of the city-specific uh, training data that you have. And you, you we're able to achieve well above 95% accuracy across the board in any city we, we go into. And we can do that rapidly, right, without needing the months uh, of, of kind of establishing a ground truth or, you know, uh, defining what is what on every single street. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you had mentioned earlier when you were describing the industry as sort of like flying the plane while building or building the plane while flying it. Um, have you found that when you started kind of pitching this idea to different customers, did you discover that any of these um, micromobility operators or manufacturers were trying to do essentially what you're doing now in-house? Like, were they even thinking about it or had they made any progress on that front? Uh, yes. So that's a great question. And full disclosure, um, prior to Drover, I was co-founder of Clever Mobility, which operated in a handful of U.S. cities under the brand Groove. So and in that capacity, I wrote the permits um, for for us. I inter- interfaced with the cities and the regulatory environments. And and at Clever, we were actually trying to solve this problem ourselves for the past two and a half years. But our team there was focused on enhanced GPS um, and all of the bells and whistles that can be thrown in that pile, you know, from RTK to precise point positioning, dead reckoning. And, and all of those things um, ended up lending themselves fairly well to a pretty compelling demo, but but didn't scale well enough or accurately enough across the most challenging areas, right? The densest of urban environments. And so we found out that GPS alone wasn't going to cut it. But in the process of doing that, we you know, com- learned and, and we started creating the demand. I was speaking to cities saying, hey, guys, this is a, a problem technology should be able to solve. You need to be including at least a request for this type of technology in RFPs. And, and so I'm uh, partially responsible for, for nudging the regulatory environment in that direction. And, and as a result, um, to your question, several other operators started trying to solve this, this problem both in-house, but also it sprung up the, the you know, a, a couple of uh, third-party companies that were trying to solve this in different ways. On the operator side, you had you know, uh, Uber's new mobility robotics division, which was trying to do all kinds of cool things, including self-balancing bikes. And so they were trying to solve this problem and, and they were unsuccessful. I mean, this is a non-trivial problem to solve effectively. And then unfortunately, with the kind of merger slash investment with Lime, new mobility division got disbanded. And, and, uh, and so, so I don't know uh, where all those people ended up. Um, Lime uh, ha- has come to the table with kind of an IMU-based um, sensing solution that uses basically artificial intelligence, but only trying to detect surface type. And that falls apart in, in you know, the kind of variety that you see across cities. What happens when the sidewalk is exactly the same surface as the street, which which occurs quite often, and you're trying to measure expansion joints in concrete or whatever it is, um, as opposed to smooth asphalt. So um, we, we felt the need for computer vision uh, to, to really kind of, uh, you know, elevate it to a point where it was accurate enough. Um, and then, so, but, but the operators don't, didn't necessarily have the incentive to solve this. I mean, the, the way I, I describe it is they were faced with, um, unit economics issues and trying to survive and running a business that is both operationally intensive as well as a consumer facing business. And so talking about this kind of technology development is basically, you know, uh, asking them to solve a a plumbing leak while their roof is on fire. 
it doesn't mean that the plumbing leak isn't eventually going to destroy your house, but you got to put out the fire first. So I think operators have been focused and rightly so on, on making sure their businesses can survive. Um, doesn't mean that, that the requirement isn't there. And what I, sorry, this is kind of a long winded answer, but th- what's interesting about the, the, the space we're playing in is that a lot of technology comes to market needing regulatory environments to shift or to have new regulations put in place. We're not playing in that environment. Let's be clear. It's it's already illegal in 95% of cities to ride on the sidewalk. It's already illegal, thanks to the Americans with Disabilities Act, to block the right of way. And so parking compliance is a critical element. And it's a huge gating item, in my view, for the, the massive potential growth for this industry. So if cities are freaking out over 500 or 2,000 devices deployed, we're never going to get to you know tens of thousands of these and removing cars from dense urban environments. And so uh, our, our goal is... is we are meeting existing regulations by enabling proactive compliance through technology. So it is kind of your, your value proposition is essentially that, that, you know, the, the, the cost of, of sort of repairing the relationship and complying with, with these rules is, is lower by putting these, these, you know, your system on these vehicles and it is to even like lobby to get the rules changed or, you know, the other sort of alternatives or, or potential alternatives. Is that, is that kind of where, where the value proposition comes down or? Yeah. So I think, uh, you know, it, it touches on a couple of different things. So number one is checking off those regulatory boxes and being able to go to cities and say, Hey, listen, this is not a problem you'll have with this technology. We can ensure, uh, you know, that, that you won't have stakeholders of all types, uh, you know, complaining about this technology and, and there'll be a friction or more frictionless, uh, process in adopting new mobility that can help solve some of your congestion issues and any number of, of uh, uh, you know things you want to solve. Uh, but the flip side for our customers, it becomes a, a different value proposition because not only are we kind of like we enable um, uh, at the top level a true differentiation in an industry that differentiation is really hard to come by, right? Um, you know, uh, scooters look alike; they function very much the same. So. When you're applying for a competitive RFP and there's 15 companies applying for only two or three slots that are open, our technology really kind of helps, um, you know, our, our customers differentiate themselves from the rest. And we're proving that with, with SPIN winning a lot of RFPs, thanks to, in part, at least to our technology and, and cities um, hunger for it. Right. And, and on the operations side, we can help our, our objective um, is to help them run operations more efficiently. So if we can avoid all the parking violations and fines that cities are are levying against you because we can help you park more proactively or at the very least have actionable information um, that can help you address bad outcomes before they become, um, you know, a financial issue. Um, Insurance costs are really high in this industry because insurers claim they don't have enough data by virtue of knowing exactly where these devices are better than GPS can tell you. We can provide that empirical data. And then even beyond that, we have a uh, the ability to slow vehicles down and avoid or mitigate the kind of behavior that insurance companies are hedging against by pricing uh, really high. So just a couple examples of where we aim to try to save operators money in in using this technology. So when you're using that, sorry, Alex, um, you're using that as, you know, that's your pitch to uh, operators, but are is there any effort either on your end or within the industry to push cities or lobby cities to like, require this kind of technology or maybe not be specific about the type of technology, but at least the end game, which is um, allowing for this compliance at all? 
Yes. So, um, you know, in the capacity of a small startup at this point, we have solid relationships with a number of cities um, based on our experience uh, that, that I brought over from, from Clever. Um, and, and I think it's important to note that cities are more than willing are, are uh, actually going in that direction themselves, putting these types of requirements in there and, and kind of uh, running with it, essentially. So I, I don't think there's a, too much quote unquote lobbying that needs to be done. It's just, we need to be able to show cities um, that it's possible at scale, that it is a problem that can be solved through this technology. And then once you, you see it done in one city, any member city of NACTO, for example, is it's going to be kind of a domino effect. And that's what we've seen is it, where it's successful, where, where, for example, and there's precedent for this in, you know, certain cities like San Francisco that implement lock two for parking uh, cities like Chicago look to that and say, hey, that worked in Chicago. I mean, in San Francisco, which is a fairly dense uh, environment, we're going to implement that here. And their parking woes went uh, went down. So it's not right for for everybody. But I think to the extent cities are smart and they try to learn from from others. So I think that's going to drive uh, the demand. One does not just simply add uh, rider assistance to a scooter. Well, I, I, I think just to, to you know, kind of... Uh, Finish, finish the, the thought here. Um, I think there's an opportunity here for our technology, at least to, to help cities better manage um, or herd the cats, as it, as it were. Because, you know, whenever they invite new modalities into their city, um, they're faced with companies that have a wide variety of, of different capabilities, different tech stacks or ability to comply with these regulations that they ask or that they try to implement. And so as a B2G play, which you know, may take some time, we've already kind of begun conversations with cities where um, our PathPilot product would essentially be the black box that, hey, anybody, you want to come here with a fleet of unicycles? Great. Put a black box, put the PathPilot on it. And then you have essentially a unified or standardized way to monitor and enforce compliance while also gathering that data that could be of value in terms of transportation planning, urban planning. Things like that. So, so that's certainly something that's kind of in our in our uh, roadmap is to enable cities be- who don't have the bandwidth or the staff to deal with uh, all these new modalities with a single kind of tool um, that would enable that. Can you tell us like what? Because I, I, you you know clearly you have the things that you're doing now, but but you know anytime you put a camera on a fleet of anything, right? All kinds of of opportunities open up over the over the long run, and I'm curious, sort of you know. What kinds of like, like how, how accessible is the data? How much can you use it? Like how, you know, what are, what are sort of the, 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 either the limits or the possibilities of, of sort of what all might be, might be possible with this? Because right. In theory, you could get right training data for some kind of self-driving. I mean, you could get a a map, you could map in theory at some point, right. You could have a a sort of crowdsource map, kind of like the mobile IREM on a lower scale. I mean, but but, you know, are there limits to like how much data you can pull off these things, how accessible it is? What, what do those limits look like? Yeah. So uh, uh, can I hire you? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So you, you, you're very much kind of in sync with where where we're headed here. I mean, uh, the way we look at it is that micromobility moves through cities very differently than cars do. And we're kind of at the ground floor um, of, of this micromobility revolution that um, is going to open up a, a lot of possibilities for to your point on the data collection side. And so while you have, you know, Waymo cars going through cities, mapping things very intensively from the street perspective, um, cities are also going to change and and new modalities are going to have infrastructure built to accommodate them and things like that. So where things play is going to be different 
our cameras, as far as distributed assets go through in a, in a city, are going to be able to collect a lot of that um, data. I think so. You touched on some of the possibilities there, from infrastructure surveying to curb mapping, and and you know a variety of things that that we can um, we can implement. What I guess some of the limiting factors currently, if if uh, to answer your question, bandwidth, right? And and uh, you know we don't we don't want to be spending tons of money sending images, and we don't currently send images over over cellular. We store them on board, much like a dash cam where it loops. There are certain incidents that might trigger um, storage of data, whether it's an accident or uh, you know an end of ride scenario to save that parking data, um, things of that nature. So we can be flexible with that with that. And then we just have to figure out or we're building ways in which um, our, whenever our, our path pilots come into contact with Wi-Fi, then they do a data dump. So it's not costly. And then to your point, we use that data um, to continue training the model or for any, any number of other use cases. But bandwidth is the limiting factor. Got it. Um, you were talking about how this is going to, is used across modalities, but I'm assuming across micromobility modalities or there are aspirations beyond that. So bikes and scooters. Yeah, no, we're, we're definitely anything smaller than a car. And, and so bikes, scooters, e-mopeds, um, e-cargo trikes. I think there's a big um, application here for, for last mile uh, logistics. Right, to the extent that companies like UPS and Amazon are, are, are using micromobility vehicles to um, deliver packages in urban environments. It's funny, I've had a couple of conversations with, with those um, companies like that. They don't know what MDS is. Um, you know, and so the data sharing, telemetry, uh, uh, you know, and, and anything to do with that is, is foreign to them. And so our, our system being essentially an IoT box that can be added onto those can not only help with monitoring driver um, you know, performance or compliance with rules, like not blocking the bike lane, uh, while you're delivering packages, you know, th- things like that. I-, I think there's a big opportunity for, for all this last mile delivery stuff as well. Uh, maybe this seems like a naive question, but, uh, is there a market for t- this device to be retrofitted to privately owned scooters or bicycles? Like, is there any demand for that? S- so I can't, we haven't looked too much into the demand, but I have some thoughts on on the matter. <laughs> um, I, I think we're already working with vehicle manufacturers to support the shared micromobility providers, and many of these manufacturers also produce consumer devices. And our goal, ultimately, you know, because I think there's there, it's unreasonable to expect the regu- regulatory environment to have two sets of rules: one for the shared mobility companies, where everything is capped at 15 miles per hour, and you can't ride on sidewalks, and you're geofenced around this block. And you can't go into that university campus or whatever. And then consumers are going to be able to buy products on Amazon that go 35, 40 miles per hour and ride wherever the hell they want. And so at some point, you know, to your point, Ed, lobbying at the regular uh, at the federal level for regulations to be put in place, I think is going to be effective. Or my view is that they're going to have to move in this direction where um, consumer devices are going to be regulated the same way. So our goal is to kind of be the Intel inside where vehicles will have the hardware built in. So it's less about adding a black box onto an existing product, but new products coming to market in the same way that drones had to comply with FAA regulations about federally regulated airspace. They didn't want to just count on user behavior management to solve that problem. They just couldn't risk having drones being flown at airports. So now, you know, they manufacturers have to have software on board that bricks devices when they're flown in sensitive areas, I think that, again, we view micromobility as the kind of drones of built infrastructure, if you will. And, and you have to, uh, in, the, in the process of 
of cities building adequate infrastructure, you have to manage how these move uh, amongst other modalities without kind of being problems for each other, right? Where where the, the, the scooter rider feels unsafe on the street because there's a, uh, a you know, Ford F-150 next to him going 40 miles per hour and there isn't a protected bike lane. And then the pedestrian feels unsafe because the scooter rider is pushed onto the sidewalk. So how do you manage those? And so we advocate for for the kind of flexibility where you would slow the scooter down on the sidewalk because if that's where you feel safest, it's great, but you can't be a threat to the pedestrian, for example. So you mentioned MDS, the mobility data standards, which I, I feel like is one of the like most important topics that I just never seem to be keep keep up on enough. Um, but you know, that's a way it's it's a it's a format, right, to to for cities to to interact with um, the mobility providers in those cities. And you know, it was the standard was developed before you know, sort of there were, there were cameras on scooters. So I'm, I'm wondering, um, and this is just purely out of ignorance, you know, is there a way for cities to, to interface with this new capability that you've added to micromobility devices? Like, does this open up the possibility of the city saying, Hey, I just want to look, you know, through this camera really quick. Can I just to see what's like, like how much can they do is, is MDS the only way to do that? Are there other ways to do that? Or does MDS not do it at all? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, you know, MDS, you're right, is is kind of an uh, iterative, you know, specification, and uh, cameras haven't been considered, but I'm I'm sure they will be part of it. We are, um, we're we're in in kind of communication, or we follow the Open Mobility Foundation, who's responsible for for maintaining um, MDS, and we're we're interested in essentially kind of diving a little bit deeper. So right now, MDS is is relying largely on GPS data, where you have kind of a heat mapping understanding of how things move through your city because it's not accurate enough to tell you exactly where things are. So in that context, at the very least, we can help uh, build out a more granular category or location type. So for each GPS coordinate, you would also know at this GPS coordinate, the unit was on the sidewalk or it was in a bike lane or it was in a street. And and so that's going to help uh, kind of push that down the road. But in terms of access to the camera, there's been no no conversations about you know providing cities unfettered access to these distributed assets. I think there's there are partnerships because cities have to they contract typically with um, data aggregator companies like Populous, Remix, uh, Blue Systems, or whatever to ingest that MDS data and then visualize it for them in, in dashboards. So we have conversations with data aggregators like that that could essentially offer a value added kind of extra few layers of data um, beyond what's what what is MDS and and uh, you know kind of exploring those possibilities with cities in terms of what they're interested in. So that's still early days. Hmm. Yeah. And, and just kind of following on that, like, like politics is, I mean, you know, it's the art of the possible as well as the art of, you know, just making things kind of work. And when you have a new technology, then all of a sudden the art of the possible expands, right. Or the area of possibility expands. Um, do you see the potential for new regulations to kind of be written around this new, this new capability? Are there specific things that maybe might've been on a, a city's like wish list, but they just had no way of doing. And, and now this makes possible Are the things Along those lines, or yeah, I, you know, I, I can't speak too much for for the cities on on this front. Um, so, but I, I think I would answer it this way: it, it seems like the regulatory environments are seeing new modalities and micromobility specifically as a way to kind of um, try to regulate things the way they wish they could regulate cars. <laughs> and, and by that, I, I mean you know, you can't put the genie back in the bottle in terms of like enforcing automatic geofence speeds in cars in dense environments. Not that we can't, right? I mean, it's technologically possible. It's a question of political will. And, and right now, 
you know, that ship has sailed long ago. So you can't now, um, w- without causing riots, you know, force cars at, to, to, to not go beyond 30 miles per hour in cities. I mean, I think the EU kind of started, or in 2019, they passed some, or the parliament passed some type of legislation saying that, that speeds are going to be automatically capped based on, on speed limits there. So I think there's some desire in, in, in places in, in Europe uh, to do this. But I think for micromobility, cities see this as like, hey, let's not make the same mistake again. Technology is available for this. So let's try to, in fact, be um, much more on top of this and, and create very specific rules to better manage this type of mobility, and uh, both in, in the implementation of rules, but also in the ingestion of, of data related to everything that's moving through their city. And is there is there a possibility of, um, I mean, that, th- that this data could be sort of something that would be accessible to third-party developers? Is this something that you keep really closely in your uh, in your partnerships or if people want to build things on top of and using the data, is that something that, that you're open to? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, there are so many companies looking at, at ways to um, improve the use of public space infrastructure. Uh, so whether you're, you're looking at the use of of curb space and, and managing that more properly, or just even knowing where certain infrastructure lives in, in a city, right? Cities uh, sadly don't have this kind of up-to-date information of like where all their bike racks are, right? Or, um, you know, information about like, hey, in this specific area, things are not being parked at bike racks. Maybe you should put, put more there. Or So I think companies um, that, that are kind of sitting on top of the variety of data coming from different sensors, we, we can certainly play with that. Our sensors move. Um, and, and so I think that has a distinct advantage. Uh, but yeah, we're definitely open to partnerships in, in terms of, of doing things or providing insights from that raw data that we're able to capture. Is there, uh, you know, in the automotive driver monitoring space, there is, uh, there are aspect, there's, uh, I guess some personalization. So people who don't, pay attention will get uh uh we might be have different parameters set for how they can interact with the vehicle so if someone and when i and i used to work as a kid in my dad's car rental business and so some, if someone who abused the cars uh could not rent a car later so is there some kind of uh personalization or track of individual users as they move from say a scooter on one platform to scooter on another platform that they are unsafe or um, have a history of analyzing vehicles or whatever that would protect the platform from abuse? You know, that's that's a, an interesting question, especially when you consider kind of moving from operator to operator that uh, might both have a drover uh, mounted on them. So currently, drover has no access to any user information from the operator side. So that's kind of w- one of the things that we like about our system is that it is essentially a secondary IoT module, but that is completely decoupled from any uh, private user information. And so that type of decision and user monitoring will be left up to the operator customer. In terms of doing that across different platforms, we haven't encountered that or or haven't uh, considered that yet. But I know that Spin, for example, uh, we certainly, with the information we share with them based on um, a trip level kind of behavior pattern, could reconcile that with the rider information and then use that in a way uh, to achieve better outcomes, right? So give warnings or, or you know, however they want to, to leverage that information. Um, I had a question about um, 
we've I've seen pitches about this from micromobility operators, Bird being the latest, um, around some basic tasks that would be required by the user to test to see if they, you know, are, are inebriated, basically, if they've been drinking too much. But these are usually like, fill out this thing, or are you sure you're okay to, you know, to operate this? And it's usually like in certain cities and during certain hours. Is there a better answer to that um, that could be applied to scooters, bikes? And I mean, now there's discussion about putting some sort of passive technology within uh, vehicles, right? So, um, but on the micromobility level, like what's the answer to that? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a question that I don't, I don't think we're focused on at PathPilot uh, or with PathPilot technology. Um, but I think it's a, it's definitely a tough challenge, right? Because even if you are kind of trying to leverage sensor information to distinguish between the riding behavior of a sober person versus an inebriated one, it's tough, right? Uh, scooters move quite differently and it's not uncommon just for somebody who is totally sober to just kind of zigzag or swerve because it's fun to do on, on a scooter, frankly, or, so I'm not sure, uh, you know, I think some companies are trying to, to put together, you know, sensor information and, and essentially score a ride based on the user behavior while on the vehicle. But, um, I don't know how you get from there to, you know, prescriptively saying like, oh, this person is, is not behaving, uh, adequately enough to ride this, this particular vehicle at this time. So I don't, I don't have a solid answer for you on that. No, no. I mean, it's like this crazy issue where, like you said, I mean, you can't, someone might be using the scooter in a way that mimics someone being under the influence of drugs or alcohol, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are. So what is the solution to that, which is a safety issue, right? Um, misusing scooters or e-bikes when you're drunk. I mean, Anyone who is at South by Southwest pre-pandemic, so that would have been 2019, saw like, like myself, saw like multiple wipeouts on scooters um, outside of bars. Like this was very common. I, I, I'm curious, uh, why doesn't one of the scooter companies, all these scooter companies take flack in the media or from cities about riders misbehaving on these scooters? Why, why doesn't one of the scooter companies just take you off the board? buy you and it becomes a competitive advantage? Well, that's a good question, especially in light of, uh, I think, super pedestrian slash link acquiring Navmatic uh, in, in, you know, uh, like last week or two weeks ago. Um, and, and again, trying to solve a lot of these problems based on precise positioning and, and GPS. Um, I can't give you a satisfying answer for that. I'm sure it's probably a conversation that, that might be had because everybody is essentially hedging and, and positioning themselves. I, I think you see uh, partnerships announced, uh, you know, with one of our competitors in, in Ireland, Luna, um, doing things with, with tier, uh, and, and Voy, for example. But I think, uh, there's still some, um, I guess, desire to see this scale and, and, and work, you know, in the thousands of units and we're, we're getting there. We have 2,500 units out in markets where we're live, have been live in, in uh, four markets for a couple months now. Uh, we're in uh, Santa Monica, Seattle, Milwaukee, and Miami going to be launching San Francisco and Atlanta soon. So we're the first ones out there truly at scale um, with a commercialized product that is doing what it's supposed to be doing across different cities. So I think um, if, if I were to put myself in their shoes before they, you know, they, they want to try before they buy essentially, but, uh, and make sure that it's working, uh, as well as it should be. 
So you've launched, uh, you, you kind of have this, this sort of progressive approach going, you know, from one level of capability to another. Um, so you launched with sort of level one, which, right, dynamic control, of, I'm just re- reading from, from a list here, dynamic control of vehicle top speed, virtual parking, tip over detection, um, real-time feedback. Level two is real-time sidewalk riding detection, real-time bike lane riding detection, real-time scooter bike rack detection for, for parking validation, riding behavior and infrastructure insights. That in this press release that said that was ready in, in spring 2021, I assume that's that's here now. Um, but then the the future levels, which in, in what I'm re- looking at here, I don't see like a, a time frame for it, but in there is is one of the most interesting potential capabilities that we sort of touched on with some of the safety discussion, and that's forward collision detection system. And you know, I mean, that's that's going to be the point at which you know these systems in on a scooter start to resemble really like ADAS that you know you think of in cars in terms of you know proactively empowering the the user to 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 be safer, right? To be more aware of things. Um, where where is that piece of it, and, and what kind of impact are you hoping to have um, uh, on this on the safety side of it with with those capabilities? Yeah, that's certainly uh, part of the roadmap. We're already capable of doing pedestrian and object detection, um, and and the question then becomes, you know, f- from an impl- implementation standpoint, how do you want to roll that out and 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 use um, that information? So, you know, let's face it, we're we're operating at much slower speeds than. Um, than automobiles. And so collision avoidance and, and, and detection, uh, frankly, I, I'm more concerned about how cars are going to implement scooter detection so that they can avoid collisions with scooters rather than the other way around, because the, the damage is, is uh, it, it, you know, um, obviously much worse for the, the person riding the scooter, ir- irrespective of, of who caused the collision. So uh, yeah, we, we are working towards that. I think it, these are operator or business decisions from a safety and, and regulatory standpoint. Uh, but again, it's a fine line, I think, from the operator standpoint, like how much control over something that is still being written by a human do you want to implement uh, in real time? And, and that's uh, that's going to be a, a moving target. And by the way, I mean, that's a question that I think some some ADAS developers don't ask enough either for cars. Right. You know, more more automation isn't isn't always a good thing. And. Oh yeah. yeah. From, from a personal standpoint, I turn off as many of those systems as possible. Whenever I get in a car, it's just like, you uh, know, bad, bad. <laughs> Alex, you should do that. Uh, well, you know, one of the things that's interesting about automotive driver assistance is that you, whatever is that you have these modules that uh, sensor modules go in the cars and then they output, there's something ahead, but that the, what happens next is not the same. That's why uh, ADAS and, uh, in one make and model of a car maybe different from ADAS and another. They don't brake as hard. They don't see things as well. They don't, they aren't the same. So the, when the driver unit gets installed on a sc- scooter A, um, do, and, and, the, and the unit detects it's, you're moving off the sidewalk, moving onto the street and you shouldn't be going there. Uh, do you fix like it? it uh, what is the relation between you and the scooter platform or scooter vendor regarding the output? Like who determines the, the, in the strength of the braking <laughs> and the distance over which it will break? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So our precise location awareness provides that real time kind of distinction of the location and transitions between those locations. And that feed is shared um, serially on board the vehicle, either through UART or CAN bus. And, and communicates directly with the onboard vehicle OS, as it were. 
And the implementation of speed control is, is a question of uh, motor controller uh, communication protocols and, and how gracefully that motor controller can stop you. So that is an, a manufacturer question. It is up to the operators to decide how they want to implement that. But let's be clear, geofences are already in place. There are GPS-based geofences that will slow your scooter down or disable it entirely uh, if you enter that geofence or you'll be capped at five miles per hour. I'm sure you've experienced this in Miami. There are certain blocks where they try to keep people off the sidewalk. But if you're on the street in between those blocks, you get slowed down because GPS is not aware that you're on the street. It thinks you're on the on that uh, pedestrian area. So our system gets past that and, and we'll have a much better user experience. But the slowing down of scooters is already being done by every single operator out there just on a broader um, framework of big geofenced areas, which uh, can, can kind of... Um, deal with having 30 feet or 100 feet um, margin of error. You can't afford that when you're trying to tell a sidewalk apart from, from a street. The other, So we, we provide that information in real time. The implementation of it requires some uh, engineering to communicate with the motor controller or the onboard IoT, but it can also be done through the cloud. We have that, it, that same telemetry is being shared via API. And so you could essentially, a, a backend dashboard could be ingesting these transition events uh, receiving them in the cloud and then sending that information back down to their vehicle in the same way that they already do for those GPS-based geofences. And then that would trigger uh, a slowdown or a stop or whatever it is. That second option, the cloud-based option, obviously introduces latency, which is um, bad and, and, and creates a, a worse user experience uh, in real time. Is, is there some possibility down the road of, of doing kind of what you're doing with the sort of bring your own device kind of thing, right? Everyone is not everyone, but a lot of people have a smartphone. You use a smartphone to hail the thing. I mean, it, it's not hard to imagine, you know, your scooter you know, in between the handlebars has a little place where you click your phone in. Maybe that would be a handy way to use navigation, but then also you might be able to use your camera uh, similar to like, say, a comma, uh, uh, ADAS, right, for cars. Uh, is that is that in the realm of possibility? Are there aspects of that that people just well i'm not not taking into account because i have no idea what i'm actually talking about here yeah i mean i think uh again then you would have kind of the optionality um yeah that's a question i hadn't really considered uh i guess theoretically speaking leveraging a camera that's there um is possible we do use a different type of camera uh with a field of view that's specific to our application that we can make multiple um you know kind of uses from uh but yeah i think that that would that's not a direction where we're currently going in. We're going into kind of having embedded systems incorporated into a vehicle build, right? So working with manufacturers to have the minimum system requirements so that we move away from the hardware and it simply becomes a uh, you know software license, firmware update, and boom, you're good to go with the latest Drover AI model. Okay, so so it's kind of more the opposite direction where where the camera would be something more probably likely to be just built into the the equipment from the get go. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, in the same way, by the way, cars have, you know, dozens of cameras and, and other sensors. So, um, you know, there are companies like Nexar, for example, that use people's phones or, or dash cams that they can buy to collect the data and then, you know, um, monetize it in different ways. Uh, so, so there's definitely some, some people playing that arena in the automotive space. And how much just down the road, like, are there limits to, to sort of how much, because you, you kind of mentioned that, that, right, like, like, with anything else, there's a balance between right allowing people to to drive themselves and and providing either limits or or assistance. Um, you know, besides sort of crash awareness and crash avoidance, um, 
which I imagine sort of like a, a an FCW system in in cars. Um, you know, are there, you know, is there going to be something like down the road where you know it's almost like a not like lane keeping, but you know, the system detects that you're in a a straight straight bike lane will help you sort of keep the vehicle steady. How much assistance is 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 really likely in the long run to kind of work their way into into this this form factor? Uh, you know, I think that's a, a vehicle manufacturer question because, again, self-balancing scooters are keeping, um, you know, scooters or bikes kind of uh, from tipping over one one way or the other involves technology that we are not working on. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think keeping somebody in the bike lane or letting them know because we have speakers on board that they are, in fact, you know, doing something either uh, right or wrong is in the realm of possibility. So that kind of real-time user nudging is definitely possible, but actual control over the vehicle is is beyond the scope of what we're doing at Drover. I also kind of wonder if, you know, we'll see just the form factor of scooters um, for us on the assistance side, Ed, move just towards an easier scooter to ride. So like what you see with spins, um, what is it like? Three-wheel. Three-wheel. Yeah, instead of trying to load it up with technology that will, you know, just make it easier to operate. I don't know. That's what I would do. Did someone say three-wheeler? Because there's nothing will make my Morgan three-wheeler safer than just not driving it. (laughs) We should wrap this up, friends. (laughs) We should wrap this up. Um, Alex, where can we learn more about your company? Uh, You can check out our website, uh, www.drover.ai. Thank you so much for coming (laughs) on the show today. I really am glad that you utter the word ground truth in that bar that night. (laughs) The feeling is mutual. Uh, Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure speaking with the three of you. Great. Well, thanks again. And thanks to our audience for listening to another episode of the Atonicast.